Hello there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey no, Picard. No, 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 stop, stop, stop that. Don't do it that way. Start over. Why? Start over. Oh, it was awful. That's my normal voice. No, it's not like monster trucks. Come on. Ah, uh, all right. Hello there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor, scene by scene, talk about Harvey Pekar, which means baker in another language, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And today we are sadly discussing the final scene of American Splendor, the credits, which start at 1 hour, 37 minutes, and 33 seconds, and ends 3 minutes and 36 seconds at 1 hour, 41 minutes, and 9 seconds. So yeah, here we are, the movie's over, and now we're watching the credits over the very soulful interpretation of Ain't That Peculiar by Chocolate Genius. Yes, and it was also, the Marvin Gaye version is in the movie. Earlier in the movie, yeah. So I thought it was interesting that they decided to repeat it in a different tone. Yeah. At the they end. They clearly really liked that song, but wanted to have a different take on it for the end. And I like I like that version quite a it lot. It was really good, yeah. Yeah. And I guess they're trying to say, isn't the movie peculiar? Aren't or isn't those, this guy Harvey Picard? Isn't Harvey, pe- Harvey and... peculiar? Oh. Oh. Picardlier. Hmm. And that's it, folks. See you next season. <laughs> and there was a bunch of credits. <laughs> Actually, credits are really important. They are. The older I get, the more I respect them, you know, because a lot of people get involved to make this thing happen. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's, that's the thing about movies. And, and we always talk about that as cartoonists, right? That when you're a cartoonist and you write and draw your own stuff, you are the entire cast crew production department everything mm-hmm. of a of a film although i remember as a, a kid because i love the assembly line credits mm-hmm. you know in comics i would write writer dean haspiel right. penciler dean haspiel <laughs> inker dean haspiel, like the whole thing yes. i was like why layouts dean haspiel <laughs> everything <laughs> that's right yeah no credits are very key and i try to sit through them especially in the theater you yeah know, sometimes i don't at home on a DVD or something like that. Well, I really liked the stinger at the end here, you know, when you just hear that deep breathing. You mean like in Halloween, Michael Myers, <laughs> where, where Harvey is wearing a mask and he's going to go serial kill? <laughs> you know, that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk about, but we'll get to that in a minute. Do you, do you have any other thoughts about the credits or some of the yeah, people I just, involved? I wanted to pick out a couple of names. So we talked a little bit about Jason Gerstein, who was the... Office PA was his official credited title in the on the credits, but according to the commentary, he was the guy who replicated Crumb's sketchbook and mm-hmm. did those drawings in Crumb style really early on mm-hmm. in the movie. And then we're assuming that he was also the guy who did the Fred slash Frank Stack drawings that we saw, like um, James McCaffrey's hand right. sort of sketching in, but the drawings themselves were probably done by somebody on set. Did you look him up? Did he go move into a career of comics? Oh, that's a good question. I can do that later on while we're okay. talking. But, you know, it's cool that they 
he got a credit. He was officially was an office PA, but then later on, when they list all of the people who did original artwork, they also credited him along with all the other right. actual cartoonists. So that was kind of cool for him. And the uh, animation, title sequence, and visual effects created by Twinkle, mm-hmm. which of course was Gary Lieb and John Kuramoto. So design and animation by Gary Lieb, animation and compositing by John Kuramoto. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that they don't specifically mention Doug Allen there, hmm. because I was under the impression that he had done a lot of the drawings that animate. But he is mentioned later when they talk about the original artwork, and they mention a bunch of names, including yours. So I'm wondering if there's just some slight distinction there or whether it'll be interesting when we've talked to Gary to find out, you know, who did what. What the process was. And then I also thought it was interesting. There were a couple of like kind of enigmatic little quotes that I did a little looking into. So one was, quote, the first live theatrical production based on the comic book American Splendor was produced by the independent eye. Because, as you know, in the movie, they show a theatrical production Mm -hmm. of American Splendor in L.A. And I guess they just wanted to make sure everybody knew that that was actually like the third time that they had done uh, adaptation of American Splendor for theater. Because in the movie, it sort of implied that this sort of was the first time. And it sort of sets Harvey on the path of more widespread recognition, etc. So then they also say the producers would like to thank all of those who kept the hope of American Splendor, the movie, alive over the years. So they mentioned four names. The first one is Burnt Capra. Have you ever heard of Burnt Capra? Nope. So neither had I. But he's an Austrian director and production designer. And in 1995, so six years before production began on this movie, mm-hmm. he was attached to a film option for American Splendor. Hmm. And... Obviously, that didn't end up happening, but that might have been one of those scripts that you saw in I'm Ted just Hope's thinking. It's possible. office. And then they also mentioned Vince Waldron, who was the guy who adapted American Splendor for that L.A. theatrical production that we saw, like, you know, the reenactment of. And then they mentioned the Arena Stage, which was site of the 1987 Washington, D.C. theater adaptation. I, I'm assuming this was something that Harvey and Joyce really wanted to get in there was that there had been inklings or aspirations to make an American Splendor movie going as far back as the mid-80s, and that it really was a long process. It would make sense because if he was on television, David Letterman, you know, producers are always looking at talk shows and and trying to figure out, and everybody is willing to throw a couple hundred bucks toward an option, you know, just Mm -hmm. to hold on to something for a while. Because that's all it really is, right? It's just a few hundred dollars It could be hundreds of thousands of dollars depending you know but yeah if you're if you're you know not necessarily famous but somebody has an idea you know or or, like wants your idea they can offer you something piddly that you then sign a contract and you can opt for six months a year three whatever however however long and it's just up to you to decide is that worth it Mm -hmm. you know to give someone else the right a, a certain media right you know for them to explore. You Haven't know? some of your properties been optioned? Nothing's been optioned. Oh, okay. I thought you I'm told working, me that I, Billy Dogma once was No, optioned. I'm working... Uh, I co-wrote a TV show idea and a pilot with uh, Jonathan Vankin that was actually optioned by a network for six months. And that ran out. And so we're still pursuing trying to produce it and develop it and get it to a network and so on and so forth. All right. I so hope that, that happens. Not, and Jonathan Vankin, just to remind people, was the editor of American Splendor, 
at DC Vertigo and also the editor of The Quitter. So That's right. connection to all of this. That's right. He saw the merits in uh, Harvey Picard. Well, I brought Harvey to Jonathan and Jonathan brought it to DC. Yeah. So, because I met him, I had actually drawn two of his stories in these the big book of... Oh, Jonathan Vankin stories. Yes. And those big book of urban legends, big book of Stuff like that, the crime. 70s. And right. So I had drawn two stories, and then I got wind that he was becoming an editor at Vertigo oh, okay. and was moving to New York. And I met him for lunch a week before he started his job at DC. And I had gave him like three different ideas, one of them being a collaboration with Harvey Picar on something. And that was before the quitter? That was before the quitter. Wow, okay. It became the quitter. Right, right. So... And he was always trying to get, you know, more literary folks into DC Vertigo. Yeah. And Vertigo was a spot for that, you know. It, in not addition. originally, because it, it was originally a way to do a more mature right. version of Swamp Thing. Yeah. Uh, Sandman. Sandman was introduced at Vertigo, Hellblazer, you know, Neil right. Gaiman. So the, a lot of the British invasion, mm -hmm. you know, did a lot of comics there. I guess I'm sorry. I guess I'm remembering that they had Paradox Productions Paradox first, Productions, which that's was right. their literary right. thing, and then that's where the big book things. Big were, books were there. Were the history of violence that then right. was made into a movie. Uh, I think Andy Helfer was, I think, the editor of that series. Mm -hmm. But then, toward the end of a certain era of Vertigo, there were more literary people doing comics. Yeah, you know, it became sort of DC's alternative wing. And they just shuttered their doors, or yeah. they're shutting their doors like immediately, mm -hmm. which is the end of an era. That was Karen Berger's baby. Yeah, I think yeah. after she left, it just didn't really have the same verve to it. Well, also the contracts, like you had Image Comics and a whole bunch of other publishers that, yeah. you know, authors or creators could keep certain rights that DC insist upon. Mm -hmm. So I understand why it was more difficult to get certain talent with certain ideas published by vertigo yeah and that's part of why i think it withered r.i.p so then at minute two second five they have the original artwork provided by doug allen greg budget r crumb gary dumb jason gerstein dean haspiel joe sacco jerry shamray frank stack and joe zabel was that cool to see your name up there totally cool. sitting there for the credits absolutely yeah I it's always an honor to be acknowledged, you know, for the little contribution one makes. Yeah. You know? Give it up. So, no, it was great. <laughs> and to be among those guys, I still feel out of place. Really? You know, because this is before This the is before quitter. the quitter. So, I was still, like... Well, Jason Gerstein, he was in that group. <laughs> true. And I didn't know him. But because... Yeah, all those other guys... Harvey's memoirs, semi-autobiocomics, you know, yeah. nonfiction, and I'm there... Like the majority of my work is more superhero oriented. Yeah, that's but you had done a lot place. of good autobio stuff for Keyhole. Well, in our comics, yeah, you know, and that was my attempt, you know, at doing that kind of sure. stuff. So, so we were at the premiere, yes, the New York premiere, and we were sitting there, and those credits went by, and I, I do believe that I stood up and gave a standing ovation when your name came up on Did the you credits really? and screamed, "Yeah, Dean, woof, Aww. woof, woof!" You were the I, one that sounded like a that, dog. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a poodle were you a poodle josh <laughs> so just one last thing about the credits so they listed a lot of things that people do on movies gaffers and mm -hmm. best boys and mm -hmm. rig masters and prop masters and they mentioned the drivers they yeah. had a list of the drivers but i did not see hollywood bob's name mm. in the list of drivers well that might have been was that after the movie 
when Hollywood Bob came along? I think Hollywood Bob emerged after the Okay. Movie. I think So but, he was around but not yet in use by Harvey and didn't work on the film. I don't know. I don't think he worked on the film. That would have been more of a personal contract of sorts, <laughs> I, I presume. And again, I drew a I know one or two page Hollywood Bob comic that I don't remember and I need to find it. <laughs> yeah, we got to Was that one. published in our movie year? Uh, or it was probably in the in the Vertigo series, I'll bet. Yeah, that's so, more likely. But uh, yeah, no drivers, craft services. I mean, they're the ones that make the movie hum, you know. Or else, how do you you know shoot film and get actors doing stuff and whatnot? We forget how important a role the PAs and you know all that grunt work to make it happen. Uh-huh. You know, no, all I, the little people. But they're big people, Josh. No, it's true. No, they they provide the support that enables the artists and the creators to That's right. do what they need to do and focus on that. So do you have any notes about the credit sequence? Not specifically about the credits, but I definitely have some other general thoughts. Like, I guess I just wanted to just sit back for a second and say, phew, hmm. we did 30 episodes. I know. 30 scenes of this movie. And I just was wondering, in, in terms of just general thoughts, like any overall feeling, do you remember kind of like how you were feeling about this movie before we started breaking it down versus how you think about it now? Well, I mean, doing a deep dive, obviously, I feel more versed in it. You know, when you're dissecting something in excruciating detail. Excruciating detail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially you, you know, like... <laughs> you know, splicing it all up and and making, you know, producing the show this way. I clearly have more of an appreciation, although I've always loved this film. And I've I've said it's it's ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, that's a good sign that you still like it. Oh, I still like it. I love it. It's a great movie. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. I think there should be an American Splinter TV show. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you don't cast Paul Giamatti, but you get today's Paul Giamatti slash Harvey P. Carr. The Elden Ehrenreich. Who? Uh, the guy who played Han oh, Solo. Han <laughs> Solo. Wow. But yeah, like, because it's very rich. Yeah. And the fact that they were, I mean, yes, we talked about how, like, shows like Seinfeld and other TV shows deal with mundanity, but there was a certain way that Picar put it all together, and you'd need to get a good writing staff and a, mm-hmm. and a, and a great show runner. But what kind of know? a show would it be? Would it be a sitcom? Would it be like a drama series? All right, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about it until it popped in my head when you said that. What kind of show could it be? Did you watch the Louis C.K. show? The a one little bit. Yeah. On FX, I think it was? I think so. And it was like four or five seasons. Are we allowed to say his name anymore, or has I, he been expunged? I, I'll, no one is canceled in my culture. Okay. And I understand he did a bad thing, so, <laughs> for the record. But his, I want to say it was like the fourth season of Louie. Okay. And, like, let's say it's eight to ten episodes a season. He basically did, like, a French New Wave film. It was in black and white. And a lot of the episodes kind of just kept carrying forward the story. So and there was, like, an arc to the season. There was an arc to the season, as a lot of seasons are these sure. days. Yeah. But this one in particular was, you know, usually he was able to do episodic stories. Yeah. But this one felt like a film. And... He also did another show that was online only, which name escapes me right now, where it was basically done like, you know, like a staged thing almost. But it was very avant-garde. It was very meditative. You almost didn't know what you were watching at the end of the episode, but you felt like there was a takeaway, uh, some kind of ambient emotional takeaway. 
Was it called Horace and Pete? Horace and Pete was the show that he did online. It had Alan Alda? It's apparently incredible. You know Alan Alda is like my favorite. spiritual father. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been meaning to watch it. Yeah. And I feel like I could see how there could be an American Splendor. And, and in fact, I would almost say that Louis C.K.'s show was very much an American Splendor mm. type show. Mm-hmm. So if you do get to watch all of it, it's totally worth your while. It's a beautiful kind of dissertation on life, you know. And again, I've been meaning to see Horace and Pete. I think Louis C.K. is one of our great modern auteurs about mm. life, mm-hmm. you know. So I guess that's kind of answers that question. But it would have to be, it would have to be so like idiosyncratic and its vision and its writing that would capture something about Harvey. Like it couldn't just be well, some run in the mill. So it wouldn't be Harvey know. Picard, let's say. I mean, take the idea of American Splendor. Like I haven't seen what HBO is doing with, I think J.J. Abrams and HBO are going to do Watchmen. Wow. A TV show. Okay. But it's not Watchmen the comic. It is, but it isn't. They're right. taking the ideas of Watchmen oh, the comic. Oh, it's going to take place in that universe. Take place in the universe. They've created new characters. Uh-huh. I, think they, I think Dr. Manhattan is in it. They're doing an extension of it. And I know okay. that certain fans would be like, here is C. You know, like they... Right. Well, I know Alan Moore is not going to put his right. name on it. But I like the idea of if you have a good enough producer and, mm-hmm. and thinkers and writers and be able to extend an idea, yeah. you know, a thesis of mm. sorts. And I think that you can absolutely do that with American Splendor. Even though it's very Harvey Picar, yeah, he did kind of create a sensibility, you right. know, that could be extended. You know, So if you were to distill what Harvey Picar, what American Splendor is, I would say it is the extraordinary inner life of a totally normal guy in a mm-hmm. normal Rust Belt city, like a, a person who you would never notice or think to wonder what his internal life is like. And yet it's fascinating and full of insight and f- critical analysis of the world around him. It's funny. It's, it's critical analysis of the world around him, but in a non-judgmental way. Like as much as he could be cranky, mm-hmm. I felt like he represented different ideas, mm-hmm. opposing ideas. Well, that's what I loved about his early work, right. is that it was he was so curious and he was so willing to let people that he was having some interaction with have equal time with mm-hmm. him. You know, mm-hmm. you, you always had the feeling that he was happy to give someone else a vehicle, of, you know, to, to have them have the podium for a second, because again, he was he was not only interested in just talking about himself and his thoughts, but sort of showing this whole world that he lived in that was never portrayed in popular culture and in movies and TV shows. You know, it was the stoop. It was the people sitting on the stoop talking yeah. about... Or just the, people in an office. Or in an office or whatever. But like that engagement of humanity, mm-hmm. you know, making those connections, trying to understand each other. I mean, yes, they could even talk about class, but they weren't... Well, no, that was part of it, though. I think you really hit on something. And that's why Seinfeld, as brilliant as it was, and the way that it would loop together all these unrelated things and have them call back on each other and just, you know, make a show that was literally about nothing or about Mm -hmm. just everyday life, but make it so fascinating and funny, was that on a certain level, these people were not people that we could really, like, identify with because they never seemed to actually need money or worry about their jobs. or It just sort of was like that wasn't an issue. Whereas in most people's lives, you know, whether you're going to be able to pay the rent every month is a really big issue or whether you're going to feed your kids. And so that's the world that Harvey was always in. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a really important element that would set a story like that apart i feel like i've seen the first three episodes of a show called 
Better Things, Pamela yes, Adlon. Yes, I've seen some of those too. Those are pretty good. That's very Harvey Pekar Yeah, she's like me. a working actress who has... Single mom with yeah. two kids, I think, mm-hmm. and the struggles of life. Yes. That's very American Splendor to me. Yeah. You know, that would be You're like a modern right. American Splendor. Mm-hmm. So I could see that. And again, maybe it's moot to say there should be an American Splendor TV show because we do have them. Mm-hmm. You know, but if it was to be a Harvey Pekar type character, like specifically a Harvey Pekar somebody character, somebody doing a characterization of, of yeah. Harvey, I could see enjoying that. Although it kind of goes very against the very nature of his right of what he would want. He wouldn't want to be a superhero or franchised in that or way, or a sitcom character that right. like every episode wraps up with everyone laughing and right. smiling at the camera. Right. Or, I mean, and that's not yeah. what we're discussing either. Right. But it could. A bad version could do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I don't know... Oh, gosh. I mean, I still feel like he was probably, even after the movie came out and he probably enjoyed it, he probably still was hesitant about it all. Mm-hmm. You know? And I and I get it, because it's yeah. weird. It's not his anymore. It's not his anymore. That's right. Because he was in control with the comics. Right. You know? Yeah. So, I just learned recently, and I don't know how I didn't know this, but back some number of years ago, right after Harvey died... You were part of an event at the IFC Film Center, the Tuesday night series Stranger Than Fiction, hosted by Tom Powers and Rafaela Niehausen, where they showed the movie and you were on a Q&A with Paul Giamatti, Ted Hope, and Sherry Springer-Berman and Robert Pulcini. Mm-hmm. And you've never mentioned that before <laughs> on this podcast. I completely forgot about it. You know, I do so many things. Do you Josh. remember this podcast? <laughs> do you remember why you're here? Wait, who are you? <laughs> No, I I do remember that night because I remember when the theater was called the Waverly Theater. Yeah. And then it became IFC. And then Tom Powers uh, reached out to me to be a part of this event. They showed the movie with an audience. And then I remember we all, the five of us or whatever, stood up in front. And then I might have been asked one question, to be honest, you know, but because of Paul Giamatti and the directors and Ted Hope being there. Right. They were asked the bulk of the questions. Even though they had a bona fide harvey Picar artist up on stage again they might have asked me i don't remember the questions i do yeah. remember talking a little bit mm-hmm. and in fact i probably even discussed the fact that i had talked to ted about doing the movie in the first place sure i'm sure that was mentioned yeah yeah and then i had drawn some of his stuff but you're not really going to get into the process of like well he sends me a script and, yeah. and then all that stuff you know they like just the stuff we're doing on this show exactly where well, we can break it down in a more you know uh, elaborate way yes you know and discuss it or um, excruciating way. <laughs> excruciating <laughs> um, but yeah, I did that and that was really cool. And that was for the 10th anniversary. Or do you remember? Or the 11th? It, it was 2011. So it would have been like eight years after the movie came out. So it might have been done just because Harvey had died That's fairly recently. It was like a commemoration. That's probably why. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was on one of these trips with the State Department that I did for a few years, mm-hmm. um, where they would send me to countries far abroad to Mm -hmm. talk about civil society and talk about how comics can be used in education and to speak truth to power and all that. I was in Israel and they program you a lot while you're there. They make you go do workshops and speeches and work with kids and meet other artists. And so one of the things they had me do was they did a showing of American Splendor Mm. with me and an Israeli cartoonist who had nothing to do with Harvey Pekar Mm. at all, but I think had been inspired by him and had done autobiographical comics. So they showed the movie and then I came up and sat on stage with this Israeli artist and answered questions about, about Harvey Pekar and about the movie. Wow. And I had nothing to do with the film at all. That's I, so inter- it's like, just interesting that these kind of events happen. Yeah. You know? And people there were fascinated by Harvey well, Pekar. And I'm sure you, you had 
lots to say as you do uh, i actually don't remember saying anything either (laughs) i mean i remember i spoke but i don't remember anything that i said or that important question but i just remember that people there and i noticed this in france too because i've been in france with it and and signed copies of collections Mm -hmm. that have been translated into harvey picard collections that have been translated into french he is adored there so it's kind of like jerry lewis was huge in france Mm -hmm. and woody allen you know like there's certain american icons of culture who are more like cult figures here that in certain other countries are revered well you said woody allen jerry lewis harvey picard they're all anti-heroes mm-hmm. you know and i think maybe that's what they're responding to yeah i mean as part of being an anti-hero they implicitly are critiquing what the rest of the world thinks of america you know so with that in mind i know you might have some other ideas but i just want to play off of the anti-hero okay so one of my questions is in the spirit of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Can you imagine what an American Splendor after credit scene could be? Now, you know, in all the Marvel movies, yes. they often have one or two extra scenes. Right. They have like a mid credit sequence right. and then like a... And then the idea is usually it's, it's contributing to the next movie in some way. Right. Or, or you know, uh, passing the baton to the next phase of whatever is going to happen next. Yeah. So what would it be? So this would be a post credit scene. And, like, I guess the idea is what would American Splendor 2 be? Yeah. And I know we know his, what he did in his life. For, for some reason, the only thing, I know this is totally not what you're expecting, but the only thing I'm thinking of is at the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and uh-huh. I think they played off of this in Deadpool also, Matthew Broderick came back on and was like, all right, the movie's over. Oh. Go home. <laughs> There's nothing else to see here, folks. <laughs> so do you think it would be you like... Know, a, I could a, see Harvey doing that. Do you think maybe he found another Harvey Picar in the phone book and yeah. he just has to talk about it? <laughs> Tell him, you're not going to believe this, folks. <laughs> That's funny. Why? What would you imagine? I have imagining? no idea. Because I mean, of, he could pass the baton to... To the next Harvey Chester Picar, Brown. To I don't Chester know. Brown. Oh, that's interesting. See, you're coming up with better ideas than I am. <laughs> but I actually was thinking like, okay, not knowing what happened next, you know, in his career... Like, if you just take this idea of this guy's about, you know, leaving his job, he's retiring, like, and I guess because they acknowledge that he has made a movie now. Yeah. You know, what could have happened to a more famous Harvey Picard, I guess? You know, did he go back on David Letterman? And actually, did he He did. He He did did. go back. Yeah, he went on two more times. That's right. Because of the movie, you think? I think so. Yeah. Oh, I'd like to see those. But wait, no, no, I'm sorry. No, he went on, he came on around the time of our cancer year. So he didn't go back after the movie? I don't think so okay i do not think so, so then that might be something i feel like that seems natural like right. it could happen next you know although it didn't wasn't harvey i'm i'm feeling like he had some health issues though again like around when the movie came out and it was kind of hard for him to do much promotion and publicity and when he went out to france to Cannes, mm-hmm. that was like a really big deal just mm. to that he was it was like a last minute thing of whether he was going to be well enough. Maybe mm. I'm not remembering that right. Mm. I, maybe you remember. I do remember like, even though he's in remission and all that, clearly. He had definitely been like stricken by the whole process yes. of going through it. Yeah. It did beat him up a little. Yeah. And to the point where I feel like toward the end, it was kind of coming back. Mm-hmm. I feel like. And that is what happened, right? When he died, he had yeah. had a, a reoccurrence. Yeah. And there were other things that, you know, right. were going on. Well, so did you have other question. notes? Because I have two yeah, more Yeah, I did want to just mention, again, because I know at the very first episode, I mentioned that the film had won a number of awards. So I just wanted to like give a list of them because it's impressive. So the movie won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival, 
which is like the number one prize there. And it was called the best film by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the National Society of Film Critics. It was given the best first film award by the New York Film Critics Circle and most promising filmmakers to Polcini and Springer Berman by the Chicago Film Critics Association. Hope Davis won Best Actress in the New York Film Critics Circle, and it won Best Screenplay with the Boston Society of Film Critics, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, and the National Society of Film Critics. And finally, it won the Best Screenplay Adapted from the Writers Guild of America. And it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, which it did not win. It lost to The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Hmm. Um, That doesn't seem like a fair fight somehow. No. (laughs) And Hope Davis was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, and she lost that to Renee Zellweger for Cold Mountain. So they're saying adapted because it's adapted from the comic books. Exactly. Okay. But first of all, it's fascinating that there's so many film critics associations, Mm -hmm. like that every big city has like these association of film critics that give out awards. There's so many freaking awards. Mm -hmm. And we know this from the comics world. There's Mm -hmm. like 10 different types of awards Mm -hmm. but it is interesting too that it's a critical darling you know like Mm -hmm. it was a film that was made for two million dollars and it made a total of eight million dollars so it made more than its money back but like Mm -hmm. that's such a tiny drop in the ocean even back in 2003 yeah and it's being thrown up against all these other big budget movies Mm -hmm. and it was a critical darling you Mm -hmm. know and Mm -hmm. i know you're not a fan of critics but it does show you that like it's a thinking man or woman's film Mm -hmm. for sure Mm-hmm. Which is why cult films exist. I mean, that's that's why it's really important for us to support independent films and cult films because otherwise we have the sameness, you know, of big budget movies. I'd say about two thirds of the movies I watch are, you know, niche, small, cult, very independent films. But you like genre films, so they tend to I be do. thrillers, horror movies, sure, things like that. But I'll, I'm not saying that that's a no, criticism. It's just you're not like a French New Wave. A little bit. Movie watcher. A little bit. And some of the movies I watch are the modern versions of that. And yeah. sometimes I'll go to um, like Alamo Draft House here in Brooklyn. And it'll be like Terror Tuesday or Weird Wednesday where it's like 10 bucks to see a movie at 10 o'clock at night where they mm-hmm. throw in a DVD and maybe they invite the director of the film. And I do like to indulge that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. I love a good Avengers movie, you know, sure. or, you know, whatever, some big budget thing. But you always get a little bit more out of an indie film. Yeah. You know? I think I'm like you that way. I mean, I watch a lot of movies. Like, I'll often watch probably three or four movies a week, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, usually, like, late at night or watch part of one one night and part of them another night. Like, I, I've definitely uh, almost exhausted my Amazon Prime and Netflix accounts with films that are interesting. That to must me. be a... a- parent thing that you you said that you I don't partially get out watch to, yeah well, partially watch a movie yeah a lot of times i can't no no get no, through no, a whole no, movie no, no, no. in one night i i can't i know that if i'm going to do it i'm gonna go all the way to the end yeah you know, i have to i would prefer to do that but sometimes it's just no, not I possible get it. i get it you're a parent i am apparently that's true yeah 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 it's terrible <laughs> so i have just a couple more totally like right. minutiae sort of things okay and then i have two questions okay and a shout out so there's two choices one is do you want to try to think of other movies with the word american in the title american gigolo all right that's one good how how many do you have listed i have about 15 listed of movies that i'd heard of american pie good 
Very good. Uh, American Sniper? Uh, Soldier? This is a Clint Eastwood movie he came out with oh, a couple yeah, years ago. Wait, oh. Sniper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgot uh, about that one. Um, American. Oh, gosh. I'm kind of blanking because it's... American Graffiti? Oh, which I've never seen. You've never seen that? I've oh, it's good. It. I know. Han Solo's really good in it. <laughs> There's American Made, the Tom Cruise movie from a few years ago. Oh, American Movie. American Movie. It's fantastic. Chris Smith, right, was the director. Yes. And he was attached to this movie yes, at one point. he was going to maybe do this movie. Yeah. I, how was American Made? Did you see it? Yeah, it was good. All right. It, it has crazy energy, like great Tom Cruise. I love Tom Manic Cruise. energy. I love what Tom Cruise does. Me too. American Beauty. Mm. American Flyers. Remember that one? One of the early... Uh, Is that a bicycle? Yeah. Bicyclist? Yeah. Okay. Kevin Costner. American Hot Wax. Heard of it. American Hustle. That was a good one. I don't know it. Oh. An American in Paris. American Me. The American President. American Psycho. Oh, Brett Easton Ellis. Yes. Directed. An American Tale. Is that like about a, a mouse or it's something? It's about a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> and who can forget An American Werewolf in London. Of course. Yes. So those were just a few of the movies I thought. All right. Cool. So the last thing, and I really don't know if this if we want to do this, is I thought it was kind of interesting to think about what was the next movie that some of the actors who were in this film made. Well, so next. there's, I think McCaffrey went on to make a TV show called Viper. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the showrunner or the story editor was Howard Chaikin on right. that series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Paul Giamatti's next movie, everyone thinks of Sideways because that right. came out the next year, but actually he did a movie that appeared later on in the same calendar year called Paycheck. I've heard of that. Which was John Woo movie. Yes. He played a character called Shorty and it was also starred Ben Affleck. Yes. And it was based on a Philip K. Dick short story. It sounds kind of interesting. I saw it in the theater. Yeah? Yeah. Not worth... It was fine. It was good? I don't remember it, but I don't remember hating it either. Okay. You know? Oh, by the way, what was the next comic book movie that Paul Giamatti did after American Spider-Man? Oh, we were talking about this the other day. It was one of the Spider-Man... I think it was the Andrew, Andrew Garfield, Garfield Spider-Man Spider Spider movies. He played the rhino. Yes. Yeah, so weird. Mm -hmm. Such a weird casting choice. Mm -hmm. It was almost like Giamatti was like, well, everybody else is in a Marvel movie, so I might as well okay. be in one. Exactly. You know, i got to cross that off on my resume. I get it. Hope Davis, she's only has 55 credits on AM, IMDb, whereas Paul Giamatti has 107. Hmm. So I think she really does stay to the indie theater thing, like as much as being on TV mm -hmm. and movies. Mm -hmm. So her next movie was not until 2005. It's a movie called The Matador, which was a comedy crime thriller starring Pierce Brosnan. Oh, I did hear that one. I remember hearing about it, yeah. too, but I never saw it. James Urbaniak was in a movie called B-Movie. Don't, don't know it. <laughs> and Judah Friedlander was in a movie called The Janitor, where he played a drunk guy. <laughs> <laughs> From Toby Radloff to drunk guy. Huh. And my favorite actress in this movie, the totally unfairly unknown Maggie Moore, who played Alice Quinn. Mm. She was in a movie called Palindromes which oh. was directed by Todd Solondz. So I think there's some connection between Good Machine, Todd Solondz. That would be Ted Hope. And Ted, yeah. Because Todd Solondz is someone that Ted produces. Oh, gotcha. So are all Todd Solondz movies Good Machine productions? Well, Good Machine doesn't exist anymore, but let's just use Ted Hope as the, I see. the anchor He's there. The, the connector. The connector. And did he produce his recent movies? I don't... I'm not sure about that. Although... As in a previous podcast, I think I mentioned I had gone and seen his recent play that he wrote. That? Todd Solondz wrote. Oh, was it good? It was, actually. I got to yeah. see more of his movies. 
He's interesting. I feel like I've missed a vital thing by not seeing enough of them. So then the last credit that I just wanted to mention, because it's kind of amusing, and we didn't notice it at the beginning, was... Do you remember the very first scene of the movie and there's those kids that are mm-hmm. going trick-or-treating with Harvey Pekar who mm-hmm. refuses to wear a costume. So there's a Batman, a Superman, a Robin, and a Green Lantern. So the kid who played Robin is an actor named Josh Hutcherson. Does that name sound familiar to you? Hutcherson? Josh Hutcherson. No. So he, this was his very first film role, but he later became known for playing the character Peta Mellark in the Hunger Games trilogies. Hmm. And he's like a, you know, a darling of the, hmm. of the young folk. So, and this was his very first film role. Very cool. Yeah. Gotta start somewhere. Exactly. So I have two things. Okay. This is a three-part question. And let's do it in movie terms, because we're talking about American Murder, the movie. Who would you want to write your life story? You know, if, write if the screenplay. Me. Who would you want to be the writer? Who would you want to direct the movie? Because let's separate it. You know, yeah. obviously there's their writer-directors, but let's Ooh, have fun with this. Yeah. And who would you want to who would you cast to play you? Oh my gosh. So writer, director. So sorry to spring that on you like yeah. that. Yeah. But maybe, and, and obviously your answer will probably change after the podcast, but for the fun of, you know, answering it right now. Right. So first would be the writer. You know who I would like? Charlie Kaufman. I uh, like his stuff. A, I, you know, I, that was on the top of my head for you. I don't know really? why. I did think of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's, and I don't know what he's been up to because he did a bunch of movies for a while and then I haven't seen anything by him in a long time. Wait, you saw that puppet movie of his? The... Uh... I didn't see that. Oh, I did. That was his last... I think that's his last movie. Okay. And it's it good. kind of bombed, though? I don't think he makes commercial movies. Yeah. You know, he doesn't. So I think it's got to be tough. Yeah. I think he would be good because, I mean, my life story, like, I don't know if there's a lot to my life story that but would you're talking be about an aesthetic or But I or, think he could take it mm-hmm. and do really interesting and unusual things with it. Mm-hmm. So I think he'd be a good writer for mm-hmm. it. And then director... I like Spike Jones a lot. Mm. I like his vision as a director. Mm-hmm. And I like David O. Russell. Mm. He's great. His movies just go off the rails. Yes. You know, and I love that about them. Yep. They yep. don't follow the formula. Right. And sometimes they don't work at all. And like, I love Huxtables or whatever. That one didn't work. Oh. Huckabees. But a lot of his other movies are big favorites of mine. Three Kings is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Flirting with Disaster, American Hustle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he's good. And then to star as me. Now I have to think, like, because we talked about this before. Well, and don't uh, think about right now. Think about like a 30-year-old Josh or something. Right, or, right. Or 40. Well, I'm know? only like 32 now. Oh, so I didn't know that. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> um, I'm like Superman. I'll just always be 32 forever. <laughs> so who'd you get confused for? Damn, what's his name? Uh, the guy who was in Paper Moon... Oh, Ryan O'Neill. Yes. I used to be... Right. Some people used to say I looked like the young Ryan O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And then we, I was saying, like, now I'm getting confused for, like, uh, Seth Rogen. Oh. <laughs> I love Seth Rogen. Yeah. He's Handsome great. man. That's right. Funny guy. He's funny. Uh, yeah, I'd have to think of... Like, because I could go in any direction. It doesn't have to be someone who actually even looks like me all that much. Because no. they could use makeup. Sensibility. Like, doesn't, yeah. white powder to make me yeah. very pale. Yeah. Um... You can't think of an actor. No, look, I'll come back Someone to Someone you like. One. Someone I like? like? You know what? Brad Pitt. Actually, you probably would want a young Alan Alda. 
Oh, okay, yeah. Because that's your favorite sure. actor. But we don't look... I mean, he has nothing Does he, like... Could, could he get your sensibility, you think? Uh, yeah, sure, because a lot of my sensibility came from watching him on MASH. Well, there you go. <laughs> so it's either that I or wish. Radar. Oh, no, 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 I'll stick with Alan Alda. Okay, all right, so... It's Charlie Kaufman. Yes. Writes the story of your life, directed by David O. David Russell, Russell, played by Alan Alda. Alan Alda. That's with an glasses. interesting movie. All right, that's a good movie. I like that. <laughs> so I was actually going back and forth between Dead and Alive because I like a lot of Dead. Wait, that's writers. a band, right? I think so. You spin me right round, baby, right round like a record, baby. I wasn't going to stop you. <laughs> I was going to let that go. So I was going back and forth, and I said, you know, forget it. It can be people who are not alive. It's just about a sense, creating a sensibility. Sure. And I was fighting in terms of writers between Patty Chayefsky and Bud Schulberg. Now, do you know the, what they've written in cinema? I know Patty Chayefsky. He wrote Network. Yeah. And The Hospital. Okay. The Hospital I've never seen. It's great. It's George Network. C. Scott. It's fantastic. Great. Yeah. Network's amazing. Bud Schulberg wrote a bunch of movies, including On the Waterfront. Okay. So I feel like I'm in between the two. I don't know if I'm intellectual enough for a Patty Chayefsky, but I also don't know if I'm blue collar enough for a Bud Schulberg. I feel like I'm in between. So they could co-write it. Maybe they co-write it. Like one would do the story and one would do right. the dialogue. Now, as much as I love Martin Scorsese and Tarantino and the Coen brothers, yeah, I think it'd have to be Sergio Leone to oh, direct, you know, yeah. to bring the drama. Yeah, you know, take those take, intense close-ups. That's what I mean. And the vistas, mm -hmm. my personal vista, which is the Russian Turkish <laughs> bathhouse. That's right. <laughs> Me in the middle of the ice, ice pool, and then there's the funny answer in terms of actor, which I genuinely have said in the past, and I think it's kind of true. Yeah, which is Martin Lawrence. <laughs> Mar I love Martin Lawrence. I, I think he gets a certain sense of the humor that I have, maybe, sometimes. Okay. But then, I you know, growing up, I, I admired John Ritter so much. John Ritter? Yeah. Wow. I loved John Ritter. As much as I loved the Fonz and Captain Kirk. Sure. John Ritter, there was something about him. He was funny. He was handsome. You know, he... He, he was a, a great comic actor and, and like, charming. physical comedian. Yes. Yeah. I just loved... John Ritter. Oh, how interesting. So, I, you know, maybe it's... But then, could he do a dramatic... I mean, your movie would have a lot of tragedy. All right, so a it lot... Would, in fact, it would just be one long tragic <laughs> fall. I, it's one long fall down <laughs> the stairs. No, up the stairs. <laughs> um, falling up the stairs. That's yeah, the name of the movie. I like it. But don't forget, a lot of great comedians, after they've done a lot of comedies, what do they do? dramas right they gotta and, prove they can act and it turns out they're really good actors a mm -hmm. lot of these great comedians sure had john ritter lived long enough i think he would have become a great dramatic actor hmm. so that's okay. my answer i like it so harvey picar told most all of his life story in comics form right but you don't get to tell your last story and usually the last story is basically how you die sure you know? I don't know if it's a question or if I'm kind of making a statement, you know, and in this particular case, Harvey, who, when he passed away, one of the things I was asked was, how do you feel? And I was conflicted because obviously I would miss talking to the guy yeah. or doing something with him. But if you want to know about Harvey Picar, you just pick up the comics. It's all there. Yeah. And I remember I was asked by Entertainment Weekly to write and draw an obituary of Harvey. 
And I did like a half page thing in the magazine. Uh huh. And in terms of kind of explaining briefly to the general public who Harvey Picar was, I also wanted to submit what I had learned from him. And I think I might have said this in the past podcast or an episode, but I said that it was the power of observation. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not only was he authentic, but the power of observation. That the fact that he could listen. And I actually illustrate that in the comic. Hmm. As I'm talking about Harvey, there's this event happening. There's this moment. And I'm kind of observing it and jotting it down. Almost like a journalist. You know, kind of what you do. And so I don't know if you had any thoughts or feelings about the fact that, you know, people who write memoirs and do their life stories, they don't get to tell the last story. Mm-hmm. And and is that put upon us? And I remember when I went to our, our mutual friend, Seth Kushner, or, you know, more my buddy and studio mate, and it was a Jewish funeral. And that's where I learned that the community buries him. Like they've dug the hole mm. and they put the casket in the hole but the friends and family and, and everybody that knew him and peers pick up a shovel and they bury everybody, him because he can't bury puts, himself. Right. So you bury your, your loved one, your friend. And I just thought, I was just trying to figure out, was there something similar in comics or in literature and art? You know, besides a tribute, how does that function? How does that work? I know that, you know, we have Facebook now and every other day, there's somebody that's like, they're trying to you know, show you your memories from a year ago, five years ago, that you can reshare. But then you come across these people that have passed away in your life, but their profile is still alive. Yeah. You know, and it's very strange. It is. You know? So I don't know if you have any thoughts or feelings about that, because we're at the end of this movie and Harvey has passed away. Yeah. And again, it's not a question. It's just thinking no, out it's, loud. it's very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's one of the things that I've thought about a lot as we've been doing this podcast is is me trying to bring up my own one-on-one relationship with him, you know, mm-hmm. and I haven't really articulated it. I felt in any kind of way. Do you feel it in, in articulating it? I've mentioned this as well in the past, like sometimes I'll live a, an experience, then I'll turn it into art. Yes. And then it becomes the art. Yeah. And totally. I don't really remember the experience yes, anymore. Yes, that's totally what... And do you feel like by articulating it means that it, you'll close the door on Harvey in a certain way? Or it'll kind of literally bury an aspect of Harvey? Maybe there is something to that. Will you be my, my new therapist? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like maybe there is something to that. And maybe that's why I haven't been willing to go down there. Because I want to just keep that for myself or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like he was this public figure. He was also like a very difficult person like he he never had just an easy interaction with anybody and you could tell that was just like part of who he was he didn't it made him nervous to just have a smooth interaction with somebody so he had to always kind of put a barb in there or somehow you know complicate it and i think that you know came across really well in all of his comics and his appearances on david letterman and so forth and i guess uh those were the little nuances of the relationship I had with him. It wasn't like I just was like, I love that guy and I love talking to him and I always learn something and I come away feeling great. No, it was more complicated. It was more like a relationship I had with an older relative or something Mm -hmm. that I didn't know all that well, but, you know, would see in certain circumstances. And that's the kind of thing that you can't put across in a movie or even on talking about it in a podcast. And you shouldn't have to. It doesn't, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if I could really add on to what you've said because i think you spoke on that very well but that's part of why i really wanted to do this 
podcast mm-hmm. was to relive some of that those experiences because they were so formative too for me in my mm-hmm. career and like my learning to write and understanding the potentials of comics and like different ways of thinking about this art form that we've grown up doing and we're doing our whole lives but then all of a sudden like seeing all new potentials for it Mm -hmm. so i'm just glad that we you know have had a chance to do this and for you and i to share this experience and talk to other people who interacted with him and had relationships with him Mm -hmm. but each of us has our own personal relationship with him. each of us makes our own art that's you know that he affected or inspired but goes off and does our own thing it's that ripples in the pond kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. so did you want to you had some thanks you said there yeah i just was remembering though do you remember the very first episode that we did that we recorded it and then my the battery ran out yes. on my recorder and we lost the entire first episode yes and we had to do the whole thing all over again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know if anybody knows that <laughs> so now that's out there <laughs> So we've, we've been through a lot yep. in this uh, many months that we've been doing this. So, yeah, I wanted to thank our guests, Eli Ganeas, James Urbaniak, Val Mayerick, Whitney Matheson, Jeff Newalt, Ed Piscor, Alex Robinson, Toby Radloff, Joyce Brabner, Gary Lieb, Ted Hope, Judah Friedlander, Sherry Springer-Berman, and Robert Polcini, and anyone else who we might have forgotten. We wanted to thank Jason Wright, who's the guy who did the location spreadsheet that helped us mm. figure out where some of these scenes were shot. Thank you, Jason. Doug Latino, Evan Wilson, who did the music for us. I want to thank my daughter, Phoebe Newfeld, who recorded our ads. Um, Sari Wilson, who's a very important person and who's inspired me in, in all the work that I do. We want to thank Anel Miller of the Society of Illustrators, Heidi Bennett, Hannah Means Shannon, Calvin Reed, Jen Ferguson, John Suntress, Rich Johnson, Kelly O'Coin, George O'Connor, Rob Walker, and of course, Harvey Picar. Thank you, everybody. And I only have one person to thank, and that's you, Josh. And I want to thank you, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, coming up with this idea and indulging my hesitations and my <laughs> anger <laughs> at times. And Bring it on. Helping make this beautiful testament of harvey picard's life and our friendship our friendship our careers um comics movies and hopefully people will come across this and get something out of this and thanks for making that happen yeah thanks to all of you listeners and thank you dean so until next time which we'll see what that will be remember you can visit us on scene by scene podcast.com and scene by scene on facebook where you can join the discussion, subscribe, download past episodes, read up on the show, and check out our work, including all things Harvey Picar. And so until next time, fingers crossed, this is Josh Newfeld And Dean Haspiel. With Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. <laughs> <laughs>